0: Romans chapter 11, at the end of um, a fantastic exposition on the gospel of God and the way of God, in a way you can say the economy of God, the book of Romans, what is it? It's, it's a showcase of the economy of God unto salvation. But here in chapter 11, Paul is beginning to conclude um, these high and lofty, thoughts on salvation, and in verse 33 he begins to wrap it up, sum it up, and make his final argument. And you know this very well. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how untraceable are His ways! Verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become the teacher of God, the counselor of God, the advisor of God? Verse 35, is it not that God gave first? Who's going to pay back God? He makes, he makes a great argument that all things come from God. Who could give to God? Who can repay God? Who can initiate with God in a way? And then he comes to verse 36. Because out of God, and through God, and unto God are all things. Notice how he says it here. If if you can imagine with me um, the supernatural realm over here, if you can imagine the natural realm down here. This is, let's say, the heavens. This is the created realm of time and space. What Paul is basically saying is that unless something comes out of God into this realm, and unless it is done through God, Unless God upholds it and carries it along, in a way, Paul is saying nothing can be unto God. So, from God are all things. But then, in Him, all things have to be held together. In Him all things find its definition and its clarity and its meaning and its purpose. You, you cannot in this earth give something to God if it didn't first come from God. Does it make sense? So, if you are to walk with God, and if you are to be a man of God and a woman of God, can you of your own strength and your own wisdom and your own capability give something to God? God. You can't. There's nothing that you and I have that we can give to God. God is spirit. I am clay. Clay can't give clay to God. We can't give money to God. We can't give houses to God. There's there's nothing that you can give to God. So Paul then says, unless it comes from God, unless it is done through God, it has to have God's imprint all over it, Otherwise, nothing can be unto God. If the song doesn't come from God, if the song is not through God and by God, the song cannot be unto God. It's a simple principle, but herein lies then the revelation. God is the one that wants to climb into this creation. God is the one initiating with this creation. God is the one knocking, wooing, reaching out to this creation. It is of God. But then God is also the one who will sustain everything that He deposits into this creation. And only that which is then of God can be unto God. So you and I cannot bring a kind of a spirituality to God that we think He wants. We can't, like one man uh, said it long ago, he said, you can't bake God an apple pie all of your life because one day you're going to discover He doesn't like your apple pie. And it's a book on basically the works of man. You can't like do good works for God and come up with your own scripted worship of God and what you think God would like. Well, I'm going to do this for God. Give You can't. You can only give to God that which comes from God. It's a simple principle. So the pressure is on God then. The burden is on God to give into this earth, to dispense and enrich something from Him into this earth. If God wants worship from you, If God wants a life from you, if God wants devotion from you and obedience from you, then surely He's got to do something for you first. And here comes the question, what is God doing and how is He wanting to do something from heaven into my earth? Well, it starts in the book of Genesis. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created this realm of time and space, creation as you and I know it. Then comes verse 2, and it says, the earth now becomes waste and vacant and empty and chaotic and useless, and the earth is without form. Etc., etc. It says there the earth is now dark and there's water all over the surface of the deep. And this is where we have a little bit of a tough time understanding what's really going on. Some people say God started a created work and it's a he sort of just started, didn't quite think it through. So before he could blink, it was a little chaotic, a little bit of a mess. And then he decided, no, let's add some light to it. Let's Add a little bit of the separation of the waters above and the waters below. There is this thought within Christians that God started the creation. But verse 2 is trying to say to us, it's not quite all there yet. It's still in process and God's got to put it together. So in verse 3, He begins to sort of put it together. That's one Christian thought. But there's another thought in that verse 1 describes God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 begins to describe something that happened that turned it all upside down. And as best as I can understand, we intimate that this was a satanic infusion into this realm where Satan and his cohorts was kicked out of the heavenlies, and somehow they were cast or the Bible would say, hurled down to this earth. And as best as I can sort of put the puzzle pieces together, um, this seems to fit with a biblical narrative that this earth became a war zone and some place of judgment, if you will. And so the earth no longer bears the testimony of God. The earth is no longer in a way useful for the purposes of God because now there's waste all over it and it's decadent and it's fallen and it's, it's degraded and it's, 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 it has no purpose. And so what happens now when God says, let there be light and let there be the separation of the waters and the separation of the land and the oceans, God is beginning to then do a restoration work in this chaotic earth that is under satanic infiltration, if you will. There's a lot of allusions in the Bible to that kind of a situation versus God started creation and then he's like, "Um, uh, this is not quite what I wanted. Um, Let's do something. So whichever way of the uh, hypothesis you're on, I want to present to you, though, that this particular realm over here Um, is a jumbled mess. It looks like this. It's chaos. But I want you to notice what happens towards the end of verse 2. Look at this chaotic mess in verse 2. Waste, empty, dark, deep. And the Spirit of God was brooding on the surface of the deep. So even in Genesis chapter 1, in the latter part of verse 2, as we call it, verses... There is something that is given from above towards this chaotic situation, and it is the Spirit of God. So, God Himself, in Spirit, climbs into this creation, and in a way He's hovering over creation. I don't know what that looked like. I don't even want to imagine. But a principle is established. If God is to do anything about this chaotic situation, He has to infuse something of his own person into the situation. Because evolution would say, evolution would say, this chaos over here is automatically going to put itself together. The biblical account says, this chaotic situation over here is hopeless. Unless it's of God... There's no hope for this creation to bear the testimony of God or have some kind of order or beauty or purpose. Can you all follow with me? So here then you get a hint at the beginning of the Bible. If this earth is to be in lockstep with God, if it has to have purpose and have uh, beauty and definition, it has to be of God. And here is the medium then that God works through in this earth his own spirit. Keep your finger on Genesis and skip over to Revelation 22. This is the conclusion of the biblical narrative. After this, I am in agreement with many, if not all, of the first century uh, believers that after Revelation there ought to be no more additions to the biblical narrative, to the counsel and the economy of God. So Revelation wraps this up. It bookends, in a way, then, the counsel of God. There are a lot of other books in uh, the first century, notably the second century and, and so forth, written. But it's easy to discern that those books had no authority in them. Those books were not copied and, and, and circulated as rampantly as the books we have. And it was not deemed to be the counsel of God. So Revelation wraps up these 27 books we have in the New Testament. And I'm a very old school guy, forgive me, and just deal with it. These 27 books gives me a complete exhaustive overview of the full counsel of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. I don't need another gospel or another revelation. For me this is it. And here we're wrapping up the whole Bible, the whole story. And look here at the end of Revelation 22. Look here at verse 17. It says, and the Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit. And the bride that God has gained is now saying, Come, Lord Jesus. So look in a way what is happening here. From the very onset of the biblical account, there's the Spirit of God. At the very end of the biblical account, at the conclusion of the story as, as, as we can best understand it, there is the Spirit of God that has gained a people. And with one voice, God's Spirit, and the people that God has gained, together they say, Lord Jesus, come, Maranatha. So from, as we say, Genesis all the way to maps, there is the Spirit of God. It is of God, then through God, there will be a people gained, a people formed, a people redeemed and washed and trained and equipped, and they become so one with the Spirit of God. So it's of God, it's going to be through God's Spirit, and it's going to be by the Spirit that we're going to say, come Lord Jesus. I want to submit to you just at the onset. The thing, the medium that God dispenses into this earth to accomplish anything for His purposes is the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God. So God does not work through another medium into this earth but His own Breath. In Hebrew, Ruach. It's breath. So if anything in this earth is to exemplify God, express God, it has to be not by the might of a man or the power of his ingenuity, it has to be by the Spirit of the Lord. Is everybody with me? So go back to Genesis. And go to chapter 1. You see there then, the Spirit of God is brooding. Why is the Spirit of God hovering? The rabbis would say the Spirit of God is like a hen that is brooding over this pitiful situation. This chaotic and decadent fallen situation. Why? To hatch, to, to reveal something of the purposes of God. So it takes the breath of God to then express God. Creation does not have an expression for God without the Spirit infused into it. Okay, so we come then to Genesis chapter 2, if you flip the page. You'll see um, in Genesis chapter 2, God is going to make this man. I want you to notice verse 7. It says there that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth, the dust of the ground. So God wants this man, this dusty figure, let's call him dusty. In Hebrew, he's called Adam, but I'm going to just for simplicity's sake call him dusty. So, God wants Dusty to be His testimony, a visible reflection. So, what does God have to do with Dusty? God has to take something from Himself and put it into Dusty. If Dusty is to live for God, and and work with God, and declare God, and give anything back unto God, then first God has to do something for him. So it says it here, and um, it's not the full picture, but notice here what happens. It says the Lord forms this man from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into this man the breath of life. Do you see that in your Bible? So notice, where does breath reside? Breath resides within a man, right? So look at the just the the picture here. Something from within God's bosom. Something from within God's person, His own very breath, was breathed into this man. But notice, where did it come to the man? Did it come to the man initially on the outside? Answer? Where did it come? It was breathed... Inside of... There's your secret to how God will connect with Dusty. It will be an inside... Say it. Job. It'll be an inside job. Can you all follow with me? So you and I, we are down here. Um, Let me see if I can sketch this out for you a little bit. So there's you and I. What we often want, even in our generation is we want something of the Spirit of God to come upon us. And as we read the biblical account, we see that the Spirit of God comes upon people, even in the Old Testament. He would clothe people, and He would empower people. And we would often use the phrase, He would anoint people. And we, by and large, still have that concept predominantly in our mind. Oh God, come upon me, come upon me. But I want you to notice uh, the picture in Genesis initially. The Spirit of God, the breath of God, something invisible from another realm was breathed into the man. Into the man. Throughout the biblical narrative, it will come upon the man. But here is the picture first and foremost. It must be a work in the hidden places of a man. Out of the hidden secretness of God. Out of the bosom of God. Let's say out of the depths of God. Something is breathed into Adam. And he wakes up and he becomes this living human being. He becomes the soul. Now, in context, he has the breath of life and he is a living soul, but it becomes a picture of what God will do with every person that is born from Adam. Every person at some time or another will have to experience God breathing into them. He did it here in the beginning as a model for what his heart's desire is. Adam fell. You know the story. And when we come to Genesis 6, go to Genesis 6, we see something very interesting. Look at verse 1. It says, And when men began to multiply on the surface of the ground, Dusty had children, and daughters uh, and sons were born to them. It says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took wives for themselves, from all whom they chose. There's a big context there. It's besides the point. But I want you to notice in verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever. So the implication is that ever since the beginning, the Spirit of God has been working with those folk. But now... These men and daughters that multiplied on the surface of the ground, in a way, they began to reject the Spirit of God. I can intonate that from the text. God's Spirit is striving with men. God's Spirit is wooing, knocking. Hello? Don't do that. God's Spirit is wooing, and God's Spirit is convicting and striving, reaching out. God has nothing else that He uses at His disposal as much as as a spirit. Occasionally an angel comes down, I get that, occasionally, stuff like that. But God uses His Spirit to work with a man. And so man becomes so fallen, so decrepit, so decadent, in a way we can say, so resisting the Spirit of God, ever since the beginning. So it says, My spirit will not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Man has become flesh. And so from Genesis 6, you begin to see two kinds of living on this earth. The people who live by the flesh and the people who will live by the spirit. And a contrast is set up here. In verse 4, you will see there that uh, the giants were on the earth in those days. Uh, The Hebrew word there is Nephilim. So my translation would say the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore them children. And these were the mighty men uh, of old, men of renown." That's the first clue that I want you to see regarding the flesh. The flesh is in league with fallen beings. There's a big context I don't want to go into, but the flesh is first and foremost, in allegiance and subservient to fallen beings. <laughs> Those fallen beings, we believe, are spiritual, devilish beings of sorts. I don't want to go into all of that. But the flesh is not first and foremost in league with the Spirit of God, but with these fallen beings beings. A little bit mystical as to how that looked, how it happened. It's besides the point. Number two, the flesh is seeking its own renown, its own glory. What is that? To be known, to be noticed, to be exalted. Here you see the flesh is in league with a different supply, a different source, a different medium. The flesh is is seeking renown. And what the flesh is after, I want you to see here number three. The flesh is after might. These were the mighty men of renown. The flesh is after power, after might, after strength, trampling this one down to exalt itself. And this becomes the identity of Dusty and all of his children. Can you see a little bit of a picture? It gets worse um, if you look at verse 5. So, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. So all of those things, you know, being in league with fallen beings, seeking your own glory and renown, And being people of power, it lends itself to what? Wickedness. Wickedness is just a byproduct of that. So God sees that the wickedness of man was great all over the earth. And then look, that the thoughts and the imaginations of his heart was evil continually. So you can see that Adam is is, is, is so fallen... From the Spirit of God. And of course, God is reaching out and and knocking. But no, I got to seek my glory. I got to do this by power. And so you see now throughout the Bible, a group of people will be formed, and in a way, we can simply call them the people of the flesh. And flesh here is no longer a description of the body, flesh is a description of in league with. A wrong source, seeking self-glory, self-power and exaltation, evil, imagination and thoughts are constantly wayward. That is, man is now at war with the Spirit of God. God is not at war with the body of a man. This body is just a temple. This body is just a vehicle. But it's, it's, it's as though the body of man that was supposed to be the temple of the Spirit of God, this body became a... Flesh, It it morphed into something way below the standard that God initially intended. So man is now generically just called flesh. And all throughout your Bible, when this flesh is mentioned, it it will refer to the fallen aspect of man that has a different source versus the Spirit of God. Is everybody with me? So look at verse... uh, 6. And it says that the Lord was grieved because of this particular situation and that He had made this man. My Bible uses the phrase here God repented. God regretted, your Bible might even say. It grieved God in His heart. So the flesh condition of self seeking, self might, that condition is. It hurts God's heart. This is not what He intended. And then look at verse 7. I'm reading it from a little bit of a different Bible. I don't know how your Bible's going to say this, but look at verse 7. And the Lord said, Make all effort to improve your flesh, take all diligence and careful heed to do the checklists to improve your flesh. So that your flesh would once again become approved to me. And I may love you because of the good things you do in your flesh. Create a self-help program. Stick to it. Impose all sorts of rules upon yourself to tame the flesh, quell the flesh, improve the flesh. And I will love you. Invent a religion. In fact, go ahead and invent a few. And you'll see... That the harder you try, the more your flesh will shape up. It will become better. Just give it time and keep trying. And so here then is my Bible verse, my translation. I'm not sure what yours says. But that's what we want to read into it because that's what every religion does. Every religion knows something has gone wrong. Something is amiss. Things are not quite adding up. So every religion will attempt to focus on the flesh, by the flesh. See, it's of the flesh, it's in the flesh, and it's for the flesh, the (laughs) renown. Hello, look what I accomplished. So this is then religion. Religion will try to clean up this flesh put it back together, reform it, reshape it. It's of the flesh and you'll see it will all be fleshly and it will be just unto flesh. But the Bible doesn't call for a reformation of the flesh, an improvement of the flesh, a behavioral recalibration of the flesh. Notice, it calls for the destruction of the flesh. I will blot flesh out. Do you see that? And then as you go on in the story, you see that the way God blots flesh out and brings flesh under His judgment is through death. Through a baptism in water. God does not improve flesh here. It's as though He wants flesh to be obliterated. It's only man under the deception of fallen influences that thinks I can shape up, I can improve myself. God calls for the annihilation of the flesh. Therefore then, you'll read throughout all of the biblical account, there will be people of flesh everywhere, but God will do in a way a work by His Spirit within them. And you'll see, He will do everything He can to cripple their flesh. So they die to their flesh, have no confidence in their flesh, don't rely on their flesh, but that they would rely on God in them, God's Spirit in them. And you'll see a lot of people will try to do things for God in the flesh, like a man by the name of Jacob. He will try really hard to impress God. And God won't have it. God will cripple this man. He will strike him on his hip and cripple his flesh. You'll see the the children of Abraham all had to be cut in circumcision. That's a sign of the crippling of the flesh. Where God doesn't improve, but He cuts. He's circumcised. Here in Genesis 6, Noah begins to build the boat for the coming of the flood. So God can wipe out the flesh. Flesh is not in the economy of God. Spirit is in a human body. So then we can say, what is salvation? Salvation, in a way, then has to be the Spirit of God recovered to the temple of God, the human body. So that then becomes the work throughout the biblical narrative is to put His Spirit back in man and to make His body again the temple of God. So this tension then creates two people groups. And you'll see throughout the entire biblical account, there will be those who live by the flesh and those who live by the Spirit. It starts there with Cain and Abel. There's Abel, who in a way brings a sacrifice that is accepted by God. So obviously he learned what God wants. He brought the sacrifice unto God, and God accepted Abel's sacrifice. Then there was a man by the name of Cain, his brother. Cain represents the man who grew a crop by the sweat of his brow, muscle power, and he brings this to God, like, hello, God i got a gift for you. And the Lord rejected Cain. Cain murders. And so you see, all throughout the biblical account, the flesh will try to crush the things of the Spirit. Why? Because the flesh is mighty, seeks its renown. And then there will be Nimrod that comes forth. Nimrod, who is a mighty hunter before the Lord. And Nimrod will build this thing called the Tower of Babel. Oh, look at us. We will climb into the heavens and we will be like God. And so the empire of man begins to be built. And all throughout the Bible then, there is war. Between flesh... And spirit. When we come to the book of Revelation, at the very end of the story of God, there is a city called Babylon, and it's likened unto a drunk harlot. And there, in contrast, it's the city of Jerusalem. Pure as gold. And you'll see through the Bible runs these two lines, these two people groups that culminate in those who are drunk, full of blood and murder and greed and luxury, people of the flesh. And you'll see there's the new Jerusalem like a pure bride prepared for her husband. Those folk cry out with the spirit, come Lord. And then there's the people of the flesh, oh, watch me. Type of thing. So go to Galatians and you see how Paul puts this. Galatians chapter 5. Let's pick it up in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. So it's of God. The Galatian people, you'll see in a minute when we uh, turn again. They were born of God. Now Paul says, walk by God. Walk by the Spirit that you received so that you could be unto God. That which is of God is through God and unto God. And so you see how the Spirit here then is uh, emphasized. Walk in the Spirit. And then you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Look at verse 17. Because the flesh lusts against the Spirit. Your Bible may say the flesh is at odds with the Spirit. The flesh wars against the Spirit. The flesh is antagonistic against the Spirit. The flesh rejects the Spirit. God is striving through His Spirit to reach Dusty. And Dusty keeps saying, no thank you, I got this. So Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't walk in the flesh, walk in the Spirit. Because the flesh wars against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. It says, for these oppose one another. They are at odds with one another, so that you do not do the things that you desire. Paul goes on to explain sort of the works of the flesh. This list becomes enormous. But if you skip over to um, verse 24, Paul gives you an idea. How do you live the New Testament life? How do you live as a God man and a godly woman? He says, But those who are of Christ, notice again, you're of God, right? Those who are of Christ have crucified their flesh with its passions and its lusts." There's not an invitation for a kind of like a program or a religion. There's an invitation for crucifixion. So from the very beginning God's issue with the flesh is that it should die. It profits nothing. Only by the Spirit will a man really live in this realm. So this is then bringing us to this point. All people that want to live for God properly will have to have a spiritual birth. God will have to breathe into you something of His nature. You can't buy your flesh, even if you do good things in the flesh, even religious things in the flesh. Your flesh profits Nothing. We'll look at that in a minute. It's incongruent with the economy of God. It's not the way of God. So Paul says the flesh has to be crucified, not improved. Do you see that? He says, uh, verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, then let us also walk by the Spirit. So you have this tension between God's people and, Versus, in a way, Satan's people. And it doesn't matter how good your flesh behaves, or even how obedient you are, if it's not of God, it cannot be unto God. God's people are people who have died to flesh. They drowned in the the judgment of uh, of the flood that there are people who are baptized. That's what we mean by baptism. Most of you think when we baptize people, you join some kind of a congregation. Others of you think that when you get baptized, you get a name. When you get publicly baptized, you're basically telling people, welcome to my funeral. The funeral of my flesh. With its allegiance to fallen lies and fallen influences, with its lustful renown with its desire for power. Welcome to my death to those things. So you have to have a spiritual birth and not a religious practice. The people of God are spiritual people, not fleshly people. Look, for instance, at Galatians chapter 3. If you flip back a chapter or so, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? There's a big context here, but these are Christian people. These are actually non-godly people. They're outsiders in uh, the province of Galatia. Paul came and ministered to them, and they were inbreathed by the Spirit of God. They became the people of God, these Gentiles. What happened was religion provoked them to go back to the flesh, to performance, to works, to self-improvement. Paul finds out about this and he writes a letter to them and he in this letter is quite upset that they are going back to fleshly things. So he says to them, you're foolish and you're bewitched. Has somebody tricked you? If you skip forward to verse 2, he says, I want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit out of the works of the law because you did things or because you believed? And then notice verse 3 carefully. Are you so ignorant or silly or foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Ah, there's Paul's clue. If you want to become a God daughter, a God son, you have to have a beginning of God. Am I correct? Is everybody with me? So he said, you begin in the Spirit. Notice how Paul says we have a beginning in God by the Spirit. Amen. So he says then, you begin in the Spirit. Are you now going to be perfected by the? The obvious answer is? No. So this tension runs throughout your whole Bible. If you skip now back to John chapter 6, you'll see Jesus' verdict on the flesh. Now listen, if there's any man that ever had perfect flesh, who would that be? If there's any man that had sinless flesh, who would that be? Good flesh, who would that be? If there's any man who lived in flesh, in body, in in this thing, righteous and becoming and orderly, who would that be? Oh, say it again. Can you spell it? Okay. Oh, give me a J. Give me an E. Who is the most amazing flesh that's ever lived? Flesh in the sense that it's a descriptor here of his body. So if there's anybody that wanted to show us a way of how the body, this, this fleshly thing could, could really be stunning, it was J-E-S-U-S. And he's going to make a statement regarding even his own flesh. John chapter 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh profits nothing. Spirit gives what? Life. The flesh can do nothing. So, He's referring actually here even to His own flesh. And we know that through His broken body we were made whole. We know that through His blood our sins are forgiven. But He makes a statement that what actually makes you alive, what actually joins you to the economy of God... It's not going to be my body and drinking my literal blood. What actually is going on is that my spirit will be breathed into you. My spirit will make you alive. Nothing else. Can you follow with me? The flesh profits nothing. So go quickly to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Jesus had just been crucified. His flesh, that is his body, had been absolutely butchered, and he dies, and it is now three days later, and he has resurrected from the grave, and we have here in verse 19 the scene where the Lord appears to the disciples for the first time. I want you to notice what happens. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and while all the doors were shut because the disciples were in fear of the Jews, notice they're hiding, they're terrified, they're scared, they're intimidated, they're uh, looking out for their own flesh, the protection of their flesh. It reminds me of Adam in the garden, who after he had sinned, is afraid and timid and he's guilty and ashamed and he's naked and he's hiding. It's exactly the same scene here on the day of the Lord's resurrection. So it says here in verse 19, The Lord Jesus came and He stood in their midst and He said to them, Peace! And then He said to them, "Um, See my hands and look at my uh, side. He shows them the, the, the work of the cross. And then uh, the disciples, they rejoice when they see the Lord. Jesus, again in verse 21, says to them, uh, Peace. And then He says, As the Father sent me, as the Father used me, I now want to send you, and I want to use you. But I want you to notice, these people are afraid and hiding, and fear and trembling. There's no confidence in their flesh. They're just like these weaklings. What will Jesus' answer be for these people to go live on this planet and speak for God? Notice what He does in the next verse. He breathes into them the Holy Spirit. Notice. And when He had said this, He breathed into them. And He said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? From the beginning of Genesis, there's the Spirit of God to breathe into creation. There's a dead piece of clay, a useless piece of clay, but God breathes into him. It's a picture of what God wants to do with clay. He wants to breathe into clay, and then He works with clay. Oh, He works with it. In Genesis 6, oh, the clay ongoingly rejects God, but it's God's burden... To release his spirit. Paul encourages us to receive the spirit, walk in the spirit. Jesus wants to breathe the spirit. So, before we finish with Jesus' words in John 3, the question has to be asked How have you lived for God? Have you had a proper spiritual birth? I remind you of Jesus. How did Mary become pregnant? Did she become pregnant because she was a good, clean girl? Did she become pregnant because she had good flesh? Did she become pregnant with with God Almighty because she kept the law or was immaculate? Answer, no. She became pregnant by the Holy Christ was born of the Spirit. He had a start in Spirit. So if you want to be the Son of God, the daughter of God, you have to have a start in Spirit. You cannot have a life in religion. Even if you do good flesh, it counts for nothing. That's why so many of us, we try to shape up the flesh. We beat this flesh. We fast this thing. We cut this thing. We bleed it out. Oh, we do everything we can to shape up the flesh. And we still don't connect with God. The answer? You need the breath of God. chapter 3. I particularly want to emphasize verse 6, but let's read quickly. John 3, starting at verse 1, there was a man that was a Pharisee. Uh, His name was Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. He was renowned, and he was strong, and he was a person of authority. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and he says to Him, Rabbi, We know that you have come from God as a teacher. Because nobody can do the things that you do. These miracles, these signs, unless God is with them. So he's acknowledging God is with this man. Jesus answers and says to him, Unless you are born again. Your Bible may say, unless you are born anew. Do you see that? The actual word there is unless you are born from above. Whose Bible says that? Okay, hardly anybody. That's the actual word. Unless you are born where? From a above. So Jesus is intonating two kinds of births one that is from the flesh, one that is from humanity, and a birth that is from above, from the heavens. So he says, unless you're actually born from another realm, from another dimension, he says here, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I want to write this out for you briefly. You cannot see the kingdom of God. That is... You cannot clue in to the other realm unless you're born from the other realm. You can't understand God and that invisible realm unless you have been inbreathed from that realm. If you are to come up to that realm, that realm has to come into you and lift you to that realm. But the flesh cannot lift itself up to that realm. Have you, have you noticed Even in our culture and stuff, some of us are just clueless in the things of God. And no matter how much you teach them and explain, they still can't understand or comprehend or or see. God is working all around us. God's constantly moving and shaking and miracle and sign and wonder. And most of us were just like, what? Where's God? People who can't see has not been inbreathed. But you'll see that if you've been in somehow the things of God begins to click. You begin to comprehend. You see God all around. It's no longer a circumstance. You begin to see God. People who are not born of God, they blame everybody. They get mad at God. Why? Because they don't see. Now Jesus uses this word kingdom. That's a whole other topic. We will get into that in a couple of days. But for the word kingdom, I want to use a couple of other words. For instance, the word economy as a substitute. For instance, if if, if you are not born of God, you can't understand the, the, the rule of God, the reign of God, the kingdom, the economy, the will of God, the desire of God, the burden of God, the purpose of God. Like you cannot comprehend what God is doing from the beginning to the end and and, and the end to the beginning unless you're born of God. Does it make sense? The Google can't teach you God. A master's in divinity will not make you understand. You have to be born from above. Amen? Amen. Now another word I want to use here is the word habitat. This perhaps is one of the best understandings of kingdom. When we talk about the animal kingdom, we're talking about the habitat in which those animals live. When we talk about a kingdom as a, 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 a monarchy, then that kingdom is the realm in which that king can live. And he has jurisdiction and authority over that realm. Is everybody with me? So the kingdom of the fish, they have authority to live in that kingdom. And that's their habitat. That's where they're comfortable. That's where they're nourished. That's where they're grown and matured. And you and I live in the human kingdom. So we don't fly. We don't swim. We live in the realm of humanity. And this is our habitat. The snake lives out there in the jungle. The, the lion lives in the savannas. And each one has his habitat. That habitat is where he's comfortable. That's where he has authority. So what Jesus is basically saying, if we could in a way sort of just bring it down to human terms, is that my Father and I have a realm in which we live, a habitat. And unless you are born from that habitat, you'll never come into our habitat. The reason you are learning the human language, English, and the affairs of humanity is because you were born into the kingdom of humanity. So you eat human food, you learn the human language, and you copulate with humans. This is the realm in which you will be most comfortable and safe and have purpose. Unless you are born, you can't come into our realm. So look here again. Nicodemus system. to him, how can this be? Uh, Please explain. Look at verse uh, 5. The Lord said to him that unless... Notice that conditional statement. Unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter. So there's another word I want to focus on real briefly before we wrap up in verse 6. The word enter... You think of a kind of a kingdom. You need a passport to come into that kingdom. So in a way, you must be born from above. That's your passport. But when you have that passport, you can come and be seated in that kingdom. You can operate in that kingdom. You can live in that kingdom. That is, you can enter into its reality. Its actuality. Does it make sense? Through birth, you and I entered into the human kingdom. And now you have authority to live in this human kingdom. You can come and go where humans are and learn the things of humanity. In a way, by metaphor, it's the same with God. If God breathes His Spirit into you, but there's a little something you've got to do. We'll get to that in our next uh, session. But God is working to, to breathe into to, to Adam. Why? Because He wants you a part of His realm. And He says, unless you have that birth, you can't enter into that realm. Flesh can't get you there. Positive thinking can't get you there. Self-righteousness cannot get you. There's nothing that can get you there. To get to that realm, that realm will have to come and scoop you up And bring you into that realm. And how many of us, like the Pharisee, like the religious man, we have the worship of God and the songs of God, but we're not entered into the reality of God. So we have the form of godliness, but no power, no reality, no actuality. That's what we're about at Legacy School of Discipleship, and. That's what the Lord is all about with Nicodemus. That's what Paul was all about with the Galatians and the book of Acts. I mean, we could speak about this for months. There is one thing available to you that has been around for quite some time. It's still the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God for us has become the entertainment business. We need the Spirit of God to show off and wow me a bit, impress me a bit. No, the Spirit of God is to enter you into the reality. So I want to wrap up in verse 6. Look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh remains flesh. It's kind after its own kind. Then he says, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So notice how beautifully Jesus differentiates here. The flesh profits nothing. And if you're born of flesh or of religion, all you can do is perform flesh and religion and works, if that's what you're born of. So, whatever you're born of, that's the only right you have to live within that realm is whatever realm you're born of. Realm of the flesh, it's all you can do. That's why some of you, by constantly working in the flesh, you're just wondering what more is it going to take to connect with God? You'll be wondering that for the remainder of your life. It's not going to work. Even good flesh, it, it cannot come into the habitat of God. So, Jesus' answer, God's answer at creation, God's answer for Adam, is still the same. The Holy Spirit has to be breathed into you. It is not a thing just upon you, it's not some show. You'll notice there in John 20 when the Lord was breathed into the disciples. There were no fireworks. There was no spectacular. It was something very mystical and hidden that came into the man. In time, it would come upon the people, and there would be a lot of fireworks. Awesome. But it didn't start out that way. It started simply with dead people hiding in a room like Adam. They came alive. The question is, is your Christian living of the flesh, through the flesh, well then it's unto flesh. And that was the Pharisee, hey everybody, I just prayed. See, it's of me, and it's through me, and it's unto me. Please notice me, I just prayed. I just... fill in the blank. But if it's of the Spirit of God, your Christian life will be kept by God. You just keep keep minding the Spirit, keep praying in Spirit, keep seeking in Spirit, Keep yielding to spirit, and God will carry along in spirit, and your life will be a sweet smelling aroma to God. So simple. So, the Christian life ought not to be frustrating. It's frustrating because you are in the flesh. Or maybe you started in the spirit, but then you got bewitched. Religion bewitched you. As I have been bewitched often. Can a Christian come under a spell? Apparently so. That which is of the flesh, all it can do is perform flesh. But the Lord's answer for flesh is still the same. Take up your cross and die. That is, repudiate the flesh. Go down to the Jordan, go get baptized. As a public statement, I have no confidence in the flesh. Amen? Amen. Paul would say in Philippians there, we are of the circumcision of the heart, and we have no confidence in the flesh. Paul would say in Romans 7, in my flesh dwells nothing good. So, verse 7, don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born from above. And then Jesus goes into a metaphor there for the wind. Your entire biblical narrative is the striving of God to dispense His Spirit into man. There's your Bible. There's the story. And the entire Bible's narrative really is the story also of how man keeps rejecting that supply and how man invents his own supply, works out his own methodology and his own religion, goes after his own idols, builds his own kingdoms, and there's the tension. And that tension is with us to this day. So, there's two kinds of people living on this earth right now. God's people born of spirit, or mankind's people born of flesh. So, the question before the house today, did you grow up in religion, Christianity? Are you a works-based, performance-oriented Christian? Constantly have a checklist before God? Or have you really experienced that second birth that is not a birth from a man or a book or a movement, but it's from above and it's a whole new territory that you're born into? That's the invitation of Almighty God. Is to receive the spirit so that you can inhabit a whole new kingdom with new laws and desires and wills have you guys ever had a spiritual birth or are we just people who are cultural christians so i leave you with that question for pondering And you have got to uh, look at your time in God. Has it been mostly a walk in flesh? Predominantly in that kingdom? For that renown and that way? Because the people of the Spirit have died to that and they're learning to die to that. To enter into a whole different living. Amen? Which one are you?